Welcome to the Best Work Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Henley-Smith. The goal of this show is to uncover the personal stories of successful software engineers, founders, thinkers, and leaders who are all navigating their own working journey. Finding our best work is often a hidden journey, uncovered through an ongoing conversation with ourselves and the world around us. Every one of these episodes is packed with timeless ideas you could apply to your own life. In this conversation, I speak to Paul Egan, the CTO at Founders Factory. We explore motivations, impact, how he found work, when to give up, and we use the analogy of navigating a maze to think through life's big working decisions. Paul has watched the birth of hundreds of companies and thousands of careers at Founders Factory. As a result, he understands and communicates his own story with real clarity and real insight. For someone who now, for a living, helps create the pathways for others who are starting their own journey, where did yours start? Like like many of uh, you know my generation, I guess we could call it, who who work in the tech space. I did start at a young age in front of a computer and was coding for a lot of my teenage years. I do fit into that stereotype. The way I thought about it early on was that that was always going to be my hobby and that what I really wanted to do with my career was proper science, uh, where proper science for me was um, maths, physics, chemistry, the ones that you don't have to tack science onto the end to know that they're science. <laughs> <laughs> Not political uh, science or... or well, uh, computer science is the, <laughs> is the one that I was thinking of. Um, <laughs> but uh, in uh, university, I began to change my mind. And if I'm honest, there was a little bit of the ego element that got me to think otherwise in that I quickly realized that to be great in the mathematics field or in physics you you do have to be absolutely exceptional and at the same time you know i could see you know the, the my engagement with some of the computer science department and of course my own uh, experience of playing around with, with computers for a decade at that stage that that was going to be an easier path and i could in some ways be great if I if I went that direction because the bar was lower mm. and this is you know uh, um, mid 90s when um, when uh, maybe, maybe it was true that the bar was lower well I think they say the art to happiness is lowering your expectations so perhaps the <laughs> art to career progression is choosing the easier path so that was definitely a transition moment for me when originally I was keeping the, the tech side of things as my hobby very deliberately and very consciously also realizing that playing around with computers was something that takes up a lot of my, took up a lot of my time. So does, of course, again, like a lot who fit this stereotype, loved that um, time and continue to kind of feel like it's not a burden, it's not a job, it, you know, it, it's something that uh, is a passion. Uh, and I realized that, of course, making my career and my hobby the same thing would have its bad points. And, I, you know, they, they came to pass. You know, it, it means that you your work-life balance is much harder to, to manage. You are very happy to, to spend all of your time in front of uh, the computer and working through all of those challenges uh, to the exclusion of other parts of your, your life. Um, and that, we'll talk that, that, that. Yeah, that is a double edge. You, you know, the, um, of course, the positive parts and that what, the work that you're doing is something that you love. Uh, and, and that is an amazing privilege to be in a career path that not only is it something that I love, but also there is a, a, a lot of opportunity in that space. I mean, there's plenty of people who maybe love, I don't know, writing novels, but you know, is, is, there, a, is there a lot of well-paying jobs for that? Maybe, maybe not so much. Uh, so to um, know what I love, 
to have the opportunity to work in that and to have that valued by industry is um, yeah an amazing privilege. And so once I started taking that path, there was definitely no going back. Did you love it at the moment with which you, cho- you chose to do it because it was the the easier option? Or did it develop over time once you'd started it? Maybe I'm still spending too much time giving that example of the stereotype. But, you know, I, I, I know a lot of um, engineers who at the very in their very early childhood played with Lego. And that was very much me. Why did I enjoy something like Lego? Because it's got that creative element with some constraints, of course, but what the creation that comes out at the end is something that you can you can take a lot of pride on. You can point at and say, look, look what I built. And that is the bit that always drove me, especially earlier in my, in my career, is to be able to build things that nobody else could. Uh, and to be able to point at that and say, hey, look, and, you know, get get the the feedback for, from others who might understand what went into building that, but quite often maybe did, didn't. Um, again, I was lucky enough that uh, the earlier parts of my career were just as uh, the web was being invented and becoming a thing. Uh, and so uh, building an expertise in that area was something that um, could ha- could help me to kind of stand out from, from others around and to be able to showcase that creati- creativity in a way that was much more accessible than, let's say, maybe... Uh, you, you know, five years beforehand where, uh, you know, a lot of systems development might have been hidden away and companies and businesses and not really seen by the, the kind of um, either friends or family or certainly even the, 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 the whole of the company. You said that you felt extraordinarily lucky that your skill set matched the need of the market. Were there any skill sets as you were coming of age that you had that didn't fit the market? I I think the answer to that is no, in that my sole interest really, once I had particularly decided to leave the, the kind of more core, uh, hard sciences behind, was in was in the you know the, the tech world and mm-hmm. and um, building product, delivering some something to to users, but probably more importantly, at least in those early days just exploring the kind of data structures and algorithms and the infrastructure and the networking and like that I would be fair to say that in early on I was much more interested in the in the pure tech rather than you, you know the business or, cu- or customer value yeah um, we, we could touch upon that later because that is different to how I think about things these days but your question was around uh you know, whether what I was interested in and capable of uh, matched the market needs at the time, I think very much so. I mean, I I actually started working in industry before I graduated. And the reason why that came about is because there was such a high demand for uh, people with experience in, in web and um, uh, was lucky enough to, to be, you know, um, introduced to a company that was looking for for that kind of skill set and uh, even though I had not yet graduated they were very eager to get me in and once I quickly showcased uh, you know what um, what I could do then very quickly a, a team grew around me as well so there again is another I think bit of a luck of, of timing you know that was around um, mid to late 90s when the dot-com boom was was um, was really kicking off, and and therefore the, you know the demand for for talent was such that you you could take a not even graduate yet and be and begin to mm. empower them to go and do something completely independent with their own team, uh, and I, I think it would be fair to say that I've been continuing to ride that wave. You know, people who maybe graduate into an economic downturn uh, find it very hard to kind of come back up out of that you're you're kind of always left a little bit behind and i was lucky very lucky to to have the opposite experience there are parts to your background the way you can tell some of that working for companies like motorola and disney are the different are different types of companies that ones that you would work for mm. now how did you transition from those companies to 
to ultimately found his factory? Reluctantly. <laughs> um, so I spent a lot of the early part of my career in more short-term contracts. And I spent a lot of time in between those contracts not working. So traveling and, and, and moving around, that was my work-life balance at the time. It was, I felt incapable of, uh, you know, kind of doing a nine to five job. I oh. said earlier that my, you know, mixing hobby and work was something that I struggled with. I was either all on or all off. Mm. And so that, you know, the contract setup actually said, suited me well. So maybe I might do, you know, a three month contract and then take three months off or maybe a six month contract and then sometimes, uh, you know, a longer gap. And I did that in, in a few different um, parts of the world as well. And uh, so uh, like a lot of my engagement with, Di with Disney was, for example, in that kind of uh, setup. Um, and I was planning to go off and do another um, bit of uh, traveling in between contracts around the time that my uh, co-founders were persuading me to go in the in, take the leap into the startup world and I, you know I, I'm not joking when I said I was reluctant uh, my first reaction was absolutely not um, I am very happy with with this work-life balance and the uh, commitment to a startup is not something that I'm um, ready to to take on but as they worked to me and we worked together talking around the opportunity uh, eventually I uh, did think actually you know what I do really enjoy the sense of um, ownership shall we say both um, strategically and, and otherwise uh, in in that the kind of small team kind of configuration and the startup world is the ultimate expression of that and so uh, and particularly that my two co-founders were uh, two, two fellow engineers that I've worked together with over many years and so had a lot of confidence in what we were capable of as, as, uh, as three co-founders. Although that might have been misplaced confidence if I think about what, what, what happened next. But, um, um, but yeah, that, that is how I kind of shifted from the kind of more corporate setup into the startup world. What did happen next? Oh, uh, well, founding founding a business with three engineers is not something that I would recommend because we we did find ourselves uh, spending way too much time concentrating on playing around with new technologies, um, focused more on solutions rather than problems. And we could have very much, we very much needed somebody with more of a commercial lens and, and maybe a starting point around um, uh, the specific customer segment that we should go after. Uh, so we, we, we did kind of lose our way because we were, we were so engineering focused. Was that a lesson that you took into your next endeavors? Yes. I, all of the startups from there on, there was a, a commercial CEO that I was working with that, um, was was bringing that mindset mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and even even over it took me a bit longer as well to let go of too much of the engineering focus I, again a little anecdote here uh, if I think back to earlier in my career I would have been the kind of engineer who would say something like the customer must be wrong you know if they don't understand that the product and I might be thinking about those algorithms or data structures and thinking about their perfection and how beautiful and simple and how I have generalized the complexity of the real world into something that um, perfectly encapsulates the um, uh, the, uh, the the challenge of of, um, of trying to uh, represent the you know what's going on in the product. So the customer must be wrong if there's some exception or condition that needs to, to be added in. That's going to ruin the perfection and resistant, therefore, to kind of delivering on um, on user value and moving the business forward. Uh, and the, what the startup experiences have very much taught me is that um, that is the wrong place to put the emphasis. 
Uh, well, mm, okay, let me let me restate that. I think it's the right place to put the emphasis if you, depending on the, the context, um, if you are in a more mature organization, maybe where, where you know what the product should look like, you know much more about your, um, uh, your, your customer, then of course, kind of paying attention to the engineering challenge, whether that be from infrastructure all the way down to the, to the, you know, the, um, animations on, on a button. That is worthwhile, but in the early stage startup world, it's the it's the wrong thing to to focus on, uh, and um, your focus to have um, much more of a priority on on the customer and the user is uh, is the thing that will really move the business forward and have the greatest impact. And I think this is the this is the key point, I guess, that maybe makes the distinction is about where where does your impact. Uh, lie you know what is the thing that you're going to be pointing at back to the lego example of like hey look what i look what i built uh for uh, someone who's working in in maybe a bigger team where you're um managing a more mature product then yes maybe the thing that you're pointing at is look at how it scales or look at the the beauty of that uh, algorithm for an early stage startup the thing that you're pointing at is probably more about um, the product as a whole, the business as a whole, the team as a whole, uh, that that's probably where you're going to take your sense of satisfaction from. So, the, you know, the, the mindset is different, of course. When you were assessing Founders Factory, what were you pointing at then? Just before you joined, what was it that you were pointing at? Uh, so I know that pretty well. Um because it was very much something that I, I did both think about quite a bit, but also did not take me long to make a decision about. Um, so at the time, the last startup that I had just worked on had failed, which is a long string of failed startups. And I was thinking, Oof, maybe I give up on the startup world, or at least the very early stage one, and maybe join something a bit more mature, where there's um, less risk and uh, more of a, let's call it a sta stable environment, uh, particularly maybe from the financial perspective, you know, taking continuing to take multiple bets an early stage startup does come with a financial penalty. Mm. Um, and I was chatting to a few different CEOs at like kind of later stage businesses and uh, those conversations were going well, you know, and I, I felt confident to kind of take on a CTO role in, in some of those businesses. But then when, um, so my, uh, I, I do know um, particularly our chairman in Founders Factory, Brent Hoberman, I had worked with him before. So that is where the kind of connection came from. We were mm -hmm. chatting and reminiscing about previous uh, opportunities that we had worked on maybe had worked out or, or not uh, and he mentioned hey we're thinking about a, a kind of a incubator accelerator type setup you should have a chat with uh, henry henry is the our, our ceo and as soon as we started talking about that uh, together i realized uh, a few things which meant that i really had no choice but to work on founders factory number one was the point around team. When a startup fails, I wasn't too worried that, you know, the product didn't succeed or that the um, business didn't succeed because that's the nature of the startup world where you're um, taking risks and you know that things aren't, aren't going to work out. Um, but, you know, as a, as a technical leader in a startup, a, a lot of your focus does go into building that team and quite, you know, quite often in most tech startups, maybe half or more of the team kind of sits under the CTO. And uh, that was something that I took quite a lot of pride in and then a lot of frustration when it, when you lose that when the startup fails. And so the incubator accelerator setup did feel like a solution to my specific problem. Then also I uh, felt like the... Um, learnings that I had taken as a technical leader in multiple startups, I could apply them 
in a much broader way than I had in the past, uh, particularly given that, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, those learnings come over a few years and then, you know, the next one, may, my next role might last a few years. It, it's slower. Well, maybe it's just that I'm a slow learner. But it, I, if I look back, I, I was finding it, I was slow maybe to apply those lessons. But in, in this kind of environment, I could apply them in a much broader scale. Uh, and then the last reason, which was very much on my mind too, is probably a little bit selfish. You, you know, that whatever role you've got in the um, in an early stage startup founder or founding team or early employee, it, it can be quite frustrating because there's a lot of stress and challenge and, and frustration. It's it's not a um, an easy environment to work in. And so I did think somewhat selfishly, hey, I can kind of sidestep maybe the worst of the startup world and just pay attention to the to the fun parts. So, you know, I could look across our portfolio and those bits that are playing with cool tech or um, you know, have a have an interesting tech challenge. I can I can dip into that and play with that a little bit. And then I can step away when uh, you know, there are some of the other kind of more frustrating parts of uh, early stage startup. Turns out it's not like that at all, but that's certainly what was a motivator for me when, when, when thinking about um, thinking about the commitment to Founders Factory. But I would say it was the team part was the bit that was most on my mind, which is reasonable enough since I was just in the process of uh, disbanding once again another team that I had built, and that that's that's never a fun experience. It's interesting to think how different the story could have been had you not decided to stay in startups and in some way those failed startups wouldn't have made the contextual sense that they do now but it almost feels like they were just one side of the coin mm -hmm. and now you've turned it over all of those difficulties that you went through at the, at the time in, at the time made no sense but now seem like the founding of what came next yeah i think that's fair i think it's also probably true to say like what well, well, an unreasonable conclusion would be that you know that was a very distinct narrative like a distinct path that was leading to a, a clear goal i think that would be a lie if if you if you took away that 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 line of thought that um you, you, you know, because it really wasn't that deliberate <laughs> mm. uh, if, if i'm honest actually a lot of those um commitments to different startups or choices that i made were much more on the opportunistic end of the spectrum rather than on the back of like thoughtful reflection and you know d d deliberate um direction on, on, on my behalf. There are times where I do think if I was to go back and tell my younger self or give them give them some advice, there's, there's plenty of uh, examples like that, but one might be to, to be a little bit more deliberate, to be a little bit more self-conscious about where do I want to go. Mm -hmm. Has your perspectives on starting startups changed since you've joined? Founders Factory. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure how I would answer that question. I think. Well, the reality is that yes, because particularly in our incubator studio, I've now had my hands involved in around 50 businesses that have come out of our, our studio, and so very naturally, there's a whole lot of learnings that that are associated with that, and we have continued to refine how we do that. So very naturally yes you know i what i how i think about um creating a startup has changed because of course we've we've learned lots i think though the fundamentals are still are still pretty much um the same uh maybe if i look back at the past i was i was maybe less worried about um commercial opportunity and more thinking about you know is this just going to be fun naturally given the, the the role that i have these days i, I pay more attention to, <laughs> to to you know is this something that's really going to succeed 
part of that is because of, you know a lot of the time I do have to put an investor hat on these days. The founders that you see, is there any similarity between the successful ones and how they would define what it means to them to do their best work? Okay, I'm going to sidestep the similarity question because I, I do think it, uh, it sometimes is a little bit of a trap to think of, uh, you know, common traits that, that might um, inform whether somebody's going to be a great founder or not. Uh, but let me pick up the point in a slightly different way because I, I think it is absolutely relevant to your to your question around you know doing your doing great work doing your best work um one of the the kind of key elements to that for a founder and for pretty much any role and and i i certainly would include this for any kind of uh, technical role it is your motivations you know w what is it that you're 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 trying to achieve um, let me contrast some of the examples that I gave earlier. Uh, you know, I talked about earlier me caring much more about the algorithms and data structures. Um, that was a motivator for me and that was something that I cared about. And therefore, that's what my, and to me at the time, what my best work looked like. It was the thing that I was happy to to step back and look with pride and to ask others to, to um, share in that sense of pride. Um, and, I, you know, I, I contrasted that with how in a, uh, as a startup founder, you're pointing at different things. <clears throat> but underlying that is, is, you know, what is motivating you, what it, what it is it that you're, you're trying to achieve. And certainly for founders, this is the one thing that um, needs to be uh, very clear. Uh, and, you know, sometimes we express this in terms of the, you know, the, the mission for, for the business. And for a founder that mission is completely intertwined with their own mission, you know, your own personal sense of satisfaction and uh, achievement is the same as that, uh, as the business. Of course, for an employee, that becomes a little bit more decoupled and, you know, the, the motivators can be uh, not misaligned, but, but certainly, you, you know, maybe operating at a, at a slightly different uh, level. But that for me is the is the key element that maybe answers your question about founders, but certainly answers how I think about what, what somebody's best work looks like. It sounds like there's a lot that it, not just founders, but employees could learn from the typical VC advice that you should have a really clear motivation. In some ways, in order to achieve that motivation, you need to have a really clear view of yourself and what mm. is motivating you um yeah i just to jump in there I, like i think this is kind of what i was getting at earlier when uh, thinking about the advice i might give my, my younger self when when talking about that uh potential to to be more thoughtful about career direction i it's not step back and plan the next 10 years and then go and execute on that mm. Uh, it, it is that on each of those times when I was considering something new to be more, more thoughtful about the motivations and whether that made sense at, at that time. And I think if I'm honest, that that was not always the case. Uh, and that is where um, I kind of wish I could go back and, and tweak that part. Uh, you, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure you've seen this as, as well, Ben. Like when you ask somebody a question like where do you see yourself in five years and try to do some career planning with somebody like that most of the time people don't really know mm -hmm. and even if they did they're probably not going to 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 go on that straight path anyway but asking yourself today what is the thing that you know motivates you and that you you would like to be able to point at and say hey look what i've achieved that's a much easier question to answer and uh, I've and certainly when helping others kind of figure out what's next for them, that, that I've had much more fruit in asking that kind of question. What tools do you think people can use independently to get to the core of that motivation for themselves? So you mean like a kind of a, a framework or mental model mm. in, in order to explore that question? Uh, one that I use quite often, I don't know whether it's a good one, um, 
but is to think ahead to that next interview and imagine it theoretically and to kind of do this kind of um, little play in your head where you begin to kind of pencil in who is that person that's interviewing you? You know, is it, is it a kind of a corporate super wearing like visualization? Is, is it, is it a startup founder? And then as you begin to kind of fill in those blanks, you, uh, you kind of ask yourself, you, you, you imagine what questions they're, they're asking. Uh, and let's, let's think of some examples like on a, on an engineering career path, you know, maybe they're asking, um, have, have you worked in DevOps and infrastructure before? And, uh, you know, maybe if you're thinking about the answer to that question, you're, you're confident to say, no, that's not an area of focus for me. Uh, actually, I get m- much more uh, excitement and interest in, the, you know, the front end side of things. Or, you know, as you go through this kind of mental exercise, you find yourself almost squirming in your seat as you're like, Mm, not as much as I might like, you know, and and almost trying to kind of invent examples. And I, the reason why I think this this exercise works is because you can almost feel where the holes are, and then that that um, that informs or can help to inform where you might like to fill some holes. Um, and the other really common example on this is um, whether people find themselves wanting to talk with pride around their uh, engineering output or whether they want to talk a little bit more about their engagement with team, maybe leadership of team uh, or stakeholder management or those things. And that the, that often helps to determine whether somebody should be on an like individual contributor track or whether they should be on a, on a leadership track. Um, so that, that that's one mental exercise that, that springs to mind for me. I think there are probably others that I've tried to, but that, that is the first one that I've, um, I, as I said, that, that one has borne fruit for me quite a few times. Not, not for me personally, if, if I'm honest, more, more with, with, with team members. It was interesting when you started speaking about different tracks and identifying what track you should be on. And one thing that a lot of people struggle to work through is how big should the challenge be that I take on next? Um, you see some entrepreneurs take on challenges that are just so huge, but mm. to a typical flow definition, it's so far out that it would be such a difficult thing to get their head around that would be perhaps too big for someone else, but yet someone else might want that challenge. How do you go about figuring out the size of challenge that you should take on next? I guess the way that I would think about this is, not dissimilar to my point earlier about like five-year career planning in that I um, I do find it much more helpful to think more shorter term. Mm-hmm. A metaphor that I use when thinking about the, you know, the direction that you might want to take and in particular the disconnection between that bigger goal and, you know, your first step, the metaphor that I like to use is, is, is one of like going for a, when you're going to go for a hike and climb a mountain, you know, you can see the mountain up there in the distance. You have a sense of what, what it, what it looks like. You don't really know the detail, but you, you know, you, you're, you're confident that this is something that you, you want to head towards. On the other hand, everything between you and there is probably something that is an unknown. In fact, actually uh, that's, the, you know, if it's if it's literally a walk in the park and you do know everything, you're probably not that excited about that. You kind of do want that sense of adventure in front of you, in front of you, the sense of unknown, because that's where you're going to learn. And most, I, you know, most people have lots of different motivations, but most people will have some core part where learning is is a is a really strong motivator, and you learn from the unknown. And so the, that metaphor, I think, is good in that you can almost look for those examples where you know that there's this kind of big mountain over there, but you've got this jungle to, to, to walk through to get there. And, and so really, it's just a matter of taking that first step. And, you know, a couple of steps in, maybe you're going to be shoved off in a direction that you didn't expect. There's going to be some challenges uh, that you have to go around or, or overcome. But that's that's how I think about this um, balance between 
you know, you know the big thing that you you want to you want to um, to undertake uh, versus how do you get moving on it is is just um, reminding yourself that you can think about that big thing, but actually you're going to act small and just just take those first few steps and see see where it goes. This is where I guess probably my more opportunistic um viewpoint does does kick in and it it comes as well with like a, an absolute aversion to gantt charts and and that kind of planning you know where you're you're trying to map out everything that's going to take you to that end big result again you know in, in the engineering world uh, we all recognize that um you know that product release that's scheduled for you know a year ahead or six months ahead it's it's not that's not that's not really reflecting reality you look much more at your weekly sprint or bi-weekly sprint or whatever it is and, and just make progress on that and then look lift up your head every now and then and check are we, are we still going in, in in the direction of that big goal sometimes you might change your mind and decide to go for a different mountain but that that is definitely the way to kind of break down that um challenge of having a big goal but it feeling very far away if all that's the case, and we assume that you're you're in that project, maybe the question to ask is, when do you give up? <laughs> Ooh, um, that, that is a good question. Now, there's loads of different ways that we could unpack that question because it would probably depend on context. Um, I'll pick on maybe some things that feel meaningful to me. Uh, um, but they might not be how everybody else would think about giving up. Um, the first one would be for me to go back to that point of of, of learning. Uh, so if you really feel like you're you're not learning, then I would have a sense of lack of progression, uh, lack of movement, and that might be the time to to give up and and to do something else. And that is certainly a conversation I've had with plenty of my team in the past when. They feel like that they're not progressing and maybe there isn't that room for, for growth. You know, they've explored the whole jungle in front of them. It's time to go somewhere else. Um, and that, that is an element of, of, of kind of giving up on, not on a, obviously a whole career path, but certainly on, on you know, a particular section of it. Uh, for a founder, that is more difficult again. Uh, but... You know, the reality is, is that most of it boils down to whether you've explored all those parts of the jungle and come across obstacles and blockers in every path that you've taken. Sometimes a visual metaphor for a startup is the is a little maze and that you're ex exploring a, a maze. It's never, a, a, again, a, a linear path. And this reflects the reality that a, a startup, as opposed to a more mature organization, is searching for something that works. And the conclusion that it, you, there isn't something that's going to work often comes when you've explored the maze in its entirety, at least to your capacity to do so, and have not found, uh, you know, that, that path which leads to, um, to a, a successful business. And so that's a very natural place to conclude it, it is time to give up. Um, there's, a, there's another more subtle way of thinking about um, giving up as well, which maybe comes back more to the kind of people side of things. I do think a lot about responsiveness to feedback in all different directions and, um, you, you know, whether that be feedback to me or feedback that I might give to others, that that is always something that if that is free flowing and people are reacting to it and, and growing with that, then you know, always continue to work with that. If if that's not there or you've run into obstacles with that or uh, people are resistant to feedback, either yourself or otherwise, or, or others around you, that's also a time to give up, I think. I, I, this kind of reflects a little bit my earlier thought of the, of the learning aspect. It, it's also like all of these, if I go back to my hiking to a mountain metaphor, in all of them, you're getting stuck. There's no more progress. Um, and, and so that's a very natural kind of example of where, you know, if you're, if you're trying to hike to the mountain and everywhere you turn, there's a ravine, there's um, something that you can't cross. Well, 
that that is the time that you give up. But it's, if there's any movement, room for growth, room to take on that feedback of oh, why don't you try this or a new corner in the maze to to turn to, and you still have um, the capacity to do so, then you absolutely keep moving forward. Maze is an amazing analogy for that because you can be bamboozled by a maze and you can think that you're a lot further away from the center of the maze than you actually are. There's another, there's another bit there too, which um, is worth remembering when you are striving to do something that is challenging and therefore requires that, that uh, search is that you might have crossed a lot of ground and taken a lot of effort to get there uh, and others potentially then are looking at, at you thinking, well, how come it took you this long to go from here to there? Um, but you know that what you are carrying with you is the knowledge of how this whole maze works, not just how to get to this specific point. What do you mean by that? Again, I'm I'm really anchoring this this point back on on the strength of, of the, the, the knowledge that you build up, the learnings that you gain. That really comes from the whole exploration of the maze. You don't really get that if you luckily or cheating or otherwise manage to take that direct path uh, straight through. So it's almost uh, like you, we need to go through that maze in some way. Yes, and that, that is actually where a lot of the value is created. I'd take your own journey. Uh, would it have ended in, well, it hasn't ended, but got to this point yet if if the maze hadn't been so treacherous to begin with? The way that I would think about that is I think I am a much stronger leader and um whether that be technical leader or otherwise, um, and a much stronger uh, product person, a much stronger builder than I ever was if I had much more of a linear path than if I didn't have to kind of stop and question whether I was going the right way. Mm. And this is your, as your own personal definition of your own best work change along that journey and if so how yeah i touched upon this earlier where i had talked about how earlier in my career i am um, was much more anchored in, in in the tech side and these days i'm much more both product and, and and people focused and part of that is um is about scale of ambition i would say you know it's it's you know when i was 11 or 12 and writing some code i you know i was really happy just to get a little game level together or something like that or get a ball bouncing around the you know the screen not very ambitious for me today but for a 12 year old something to be proud of and so you know that was my best work at that time as you grow and, and mature then uh you know not for not not again. This isn't everybody's path, but certainly mine is to continue to look up higher and higher and think, you know, what's that next mountain that we could we could scale? And it's very natural to think that the way to achieve that is less about you being in front of the keyboard and and writing that code, uh, and more about bringing others around you, and then ever more about empowering them to to um, uh, go and, and, and scale that, that mountain. Uh, and that's really where the, the shift on my perspective on best work has been most dramatic. In the past, it probably was more about what I achieved. And nowadays, it is much more about what... Well, actually, you know, let me even go further. Maybe... Maybe even if I look a few years ago, it was more about what we achieved. And if I think today, it's more about what what others have, have achieved and what um, what I've enabled others to, to, to do. Uh, and that is immensely rewarding for me today, but wouldn't have been rewarding in something that I felt was my best work if I, if I went back 20 years. You know? Do you think that that desire you now have to empower others 
as something that you had innately to begin with or is it something that you've <laughs> learned along the way yeah i think more the latter i i think more the latter and i think if you asked anybody who worked with me even those so i you know i i mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that i you know, was in a lucky place where very early I, I had the opportunity to grow team. So, you know, I did have that management responsibility early on and was not very good at it because um, I had not learned yet. So I, my answer to that question is, is quite simply, yes, I had to learn it. Mm. And I was a slow learner for us too. <laughs> mm. Could I ask you some uh, a, a question that I really wanted to ask you about early stage employees and, and mm. founders? Um, I think it's early stage employees get a bit of a bad, bad rep quite a bit of the time, um, and don't get the, the airtime that they deserve there. Um, and I guess on a personal level, I wonder if there's, if you think there's any particular reason for that and if so, if there's a way of us getting over it. I think I know what you mean. But let me let me share some thoughts on it, and then you can correct me if you think uh, if you meant something else. So one of the challenges in an early stage business, and it can you can also see it in uh, greenfield projects and bigger organisations too, where there is uncertainty, then your own performance is tied to a lot of other um, factors that you don't really have control of. Let's. Take your example of that early stage startup where you're trying to figure out, does this product actually deliver value to these customers? And um, there's many different components to, to, that go into that. You know, from the engineer's perspective, you're thinking about the different um, points of functionality and how that is implemented. But of course, design has a big factor into it marketing component how you actually message that um, the whole team has to work together effectively uh, and because you're exploring that maze quite often you will go down dead ends and have to you know retreat and come back and uh, and sometimes those paths will be ones that other members of your, your your team are taking not necessarily you and so when thinking about performance of somebody in that role you can't really hold them to account for having kind of delivered value to to a customer or delivered a particular feature, because quite often you're you're shifting direction as you you figure out that you how to how to navigate that maze. And so, the way that I often think about trying to judge somebody in that early stage role is much less about performance, like their technical capability or their specific expertise, and much more so about their alignment to the mission, that lofty goal that we're aiming at, and their alignment to cultural values. If you're getting those right, uh, then uh, both their role should be fulfilling for them and they should be in some, in, enjoying that, and, um, but also their impact on the business should be um in the in the right place uh is that is that kind of what you meant or did you have yeah, a slight no it's really interesting <laughs> that yeah it almost just as you described it it sounded a bit like an engine with um kind of bits popping up out of it but they're going back in and it's almost as if the founders are that engine but they're utilizing those different specialties as they go and um and I think you're right to say that the way that you navigate that maze, you need different people at different times. But ultimately, the information then flows back to the founder to make the decision about where to go next. So. Yeah, and and well, the specific point that um, again it has was a learning for me was not to be too focused on the uh, performance as measured by display of expertise with again, whether that be technical design product mm. marketing or whatever other, uh, functional expertise somebody might be bringing and to pay more attention to mission and, and uh, value alignment. And that will be a better measure of success for the business, but, but for the, for the team as well. Mm. And lastly, you referred to a couple of bits of advice that you might want to give yourself. If you were to go back 
Um, and we touched upon a couple of them. Are mm. there any others that you that you would want to share with young Paul? Mm. Well, there are some of those uh, kind of opportunistic conversations that I that I've had over the years that would have maybe led to what are now unicorn businesses. And there's part of me that, that does think, oh, you know, if you if you um, if you had uh, taken that role, maybe that would um, have led to um, a lot of both uh, financial and personal success. But that I I don't think I would I would honestly go back and try. It's not try a time machine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the point of advice that I that I gave earlier or that I suggested I would give earlier of being a little bit less opportunistic and being a little bit more thoughtful at that time of committing to a particular role or not. Uh, uh, if I'm honest, I think my earlier self would just have re- re- rejected that, that advice and would have gone and done his own thing anyway. Um, so, you know, maybe I, I think my conclusion there is that, yes, you know, they're, they're reminiscing a little bit, you know, potentially I could have gone in some slightly different directions. But, you know, do, do I have some advice from my earlier self? It probably would end up being the exact same path, you know, travel. You know, I said earlier that I do believe that um, it would not be right to let's call it cheating to step up from the maze uh, look at the path and then just zoom down and just walk through the path and that maze in, in the quickest route possible i do think that you grow from exploring that maze in its fullest so any advice i would give myself my younger self would would almost be cheating <laughs> paul thank you so much for uncovering your own story i've loved it thanks ben The Best Work Podcast is produced by the team at Cord. I'd love your advice on how we can make sure the Best Work Podcast is having a profound impact on the way we all pursue our best work. Email me at bennettcord.co. You can also find a transcript of this conversation, insightful video content and more at cord.co slash insights. Thanks for listening.